Good afternoon. Um, thanks, Nishant, for the reading. This is a pretty sure a familiar passage, at least uh, the first few, uh, the first words should be very familiar to many of us. It's a familiar saying of Jesus Christ, the last of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. So we have gone through a series of I am statements by Jesus. This is the last one where it says, I am the true wine. Now it's interesting, the wine referred to here is wine the plant, not wine the, the drink. And today, if you just, without any kind of context, went and told someone, I want a wine, I don't think people think about the plant, right? People think about the juice. Um, so it's not as common in our thinking today. When you talk about the plant, wine. You know, Napoleon said that, you know, in victory, you deserve champagne, in defeat, you need it, right? Or uh, Martin Luther said that beer is made by men, wine by God. So our thinking in the modern era is always around the drink. But in the ancient world, the wine was an important symbol, the plant. Why the picture of the wine? It was very common in, in those days because it was tied to the fruit, which is grape, and to the drink, which is wine. I don't know how you can pronounce it differently if any English teacher has a suggestion. But wine is a symbol of, the planned wine was a symbol of fruitfulness and prosperity. So there was a Greek god called uh, Dionysus, who is the, god of, the Greek god of farming. And his symbol was the wine plant. So it is not uncommon for people in those times to have this imagery of the plant, which is the wine. But when Jesus is talking about the wine, like he says, I'm the true wine, he's specifically alluding to it because of something that is there in the Old Testament. If you turn your attention to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, it says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What these words are saying is that there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament which are a shadow of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ is the substance of whatever was referred to in the Old Testament. So what is the shadow of the wine in the Old Testament? See, the wine is a symbol for Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. You can read that in multiple places, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jer Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in the book of Hosea. It was a symbol for the nation of Israel, so, so much so that, you know, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus says at the end, come, let us go from here. And then, you know, he's on the road, you could say, to Gethsemane. He might have passed by the temple. And the temple, its entrance, had an ornament which overhung the gate in, by which you enter into the temple, which was a golden wine. And the wine was found on Jewish coins. It's a, it was a commonly accepted symbol for Israel. But when Jesus says, I am the true wine, he's making a statement that I am true or perfect compared to the wine of Israel. See, in the Old Testament, when you, are, you read about Israel as a wine, it usually emphasizes the fact that they are a 
fruitless wine. It emphasizes their rebellion, their lack of obedience, their lack of trust and faith, causing God's judgment to come down on them, or metaphorically speaking, to cut down the wine. So for example, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21, this is what God says about Israel, yet I planted you a choice wine, wholly a pure seed, organic, right? How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild wine? So the reference to Israel as the wine was usually found in the context of their unfaithfulness and their unfruitfulness to God. And most clearly you can see this in Psalm chapter 80. And Psalm chapter 80 is interesting because it brings both the imagery of the vine as well as the imagery of the Son of Man together. So in verse 7 to 8 it says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a wine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and you planted it. And then verse 14 says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and have regard for this wine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, that we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So the shadow of the unfaithful, unfruitful wine which is the nation of Israel, pointed to a wine, which is the son of man, who would be perfectly faithful, who would be perfectly fruitful, doing everything that God's will had laid out for him, who would be perfectly obedient to God who planted him, unlike Israel. So when Jesus says that I am the true wine, he's like, unlike the children of Israel, I am perfectly fruitful and obedient. But moreover, when Jesus is making the claim that he is the true wine, he's saying that Israel is no longer the wine that is at the center of God's salvation plan for the world. From this point on, to belong to the people of God means to belong to Jesus, who is the true wine. Now, many of us will have, you know, when people talk about like, oh, does Jesus replace Israel? We have to be, you know, we have to differentiate the fact that he does not replace the physical nation of Israel, but he replaces the spiritual nation of Israel in the sense that true Israel, which is spiritual Israel, is now Jesus Christ. So it's not the church that is a replacement for spiritual Israel. It is Jesus who is a replacement for spiritual Israel, so that those who belong to Jesus are now part of the people of God, as opposed to belonging to the nation of Israel. So that's important. But the wine imagery is used here, when you read the chapter, is also to further, is used here to expand on the benefits and the privileges that the people of God, who are the disciples of Jesus, have as a part of Jesus, being a part of Jesus himself. That you're part of the wine, so what are the privileges that you have? And you will see here that this imagery leads to three things that we have to pay attention to. One is, what does it say about our relationship or our intimacy with Jesus? Secondly, what does it say about fruitfulness 
of the vine. And lastly, what does it say about sustenance or maintaining or growing or remaining in the vine? So three aspects of this metaphor that Jesus expands on. Relationship or intimacy, fruitfulness, and sustenance. So when you talk about relationship, first off, you start the, between, uh, start at the relationship between the vine dresser, who is the farmer, and the wine, right? The, the wine dresser plants the wine. He tends to it. He protects it. He ensures that it grows and bears fruit. Now, one thing about grape wines is that they are not a planted and forget it type of plant. Right? They're not like a perennial, hardy plant that you just plant and then it just keeps flowering. You have to take care of it. You need to have, you know, a kind of a green thumb. Right? I bought succulents from IKEA for my basement because someone said you cannot kill them and they died. So now I have plastic plants. <laughs> but the wine dresser has an intimate relationship with the wine because he protects it and cares for it. And so you notice here what Jesus says, I am the wine, the true wine. It's the only I am statement in John's gospel that has an additional statement following it, which is an additional statement of dependence. It's an additional statement that says that I do not stand alone. It says, I am the wine and my father is the wine dresser. It indicates the level of intimate mutual interdependency between the father and the son. And you find this throughout the Gospels. How does John's Gospel begin? Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you, and you think about the Word was with God. It talks about the pre-existing relationship within the Trinity of the Father and the Son. The Word was with God, in the presence of God, had a relationship with God. So in, then you come to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. The father says about the son, this is my beloved son in whom or with whom I am well pleased. And so here you see in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 15 of John's gospel, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus highlights the purity and the intimacy of his love for the Father and vice versa. But then, the intimacy of this image, he extends it to his relationship to his disciples, which is to us. Obviously, there were 11 disciples who were listening to him at this point, but he means it for everyone who belongs to him. See, in the Old Testament, it stopped at wine dresser and the wine. But here, Jesus extends the metaphor because he's the wine. And then he says in verse 5 of chapter 15, I am the wine, you are the branches. Whoever abides me and I in him, he it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, more than any other image that we have seen of Jesus and the disciples, such as the shepherd and the sheep, the vine image emphasizes the intimacy of the relationship between Jesus and his people. Because the sheep, if you think about it, you can wander away, right? Sheep can wander away, and you can still survive. You just have to be brought back. But the branch is dead when you break it off from the tree. 
So the vine provides the life force and the sustenance and the very existence for the branches in a way that is not captured by any of the other images that speak to the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. And more than that, the vine's fruitfulness is seen where? On the branches. So there's a risk for God to say that I am the vine or you, and you are the branches because the vine now depends on the branches for its reputation of fruitfulness. So in extending the imagery of the wine from just wine dresser to wine, to also the wine and the branches, Jesus highlights that the intimacy of the Father and his love is in some manner mirrored by the intimacy that is possible between him and us. That's why in verse 9 he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me so much, have I loved you. Just the very thought that Jesus loves us with the same intense kind of love with which the Father loves him and he does the Father, if you meditate on it, who are we to be loved by God? In the same way that the Father loves the Son in their eternal, perfect relationship that is not dependent or contingent on any other external factor, but only on the purity and intimacy of the bond that they have shared for eternity within the Trinity. And then Jesus says, so have I loved you. And that love is what leads Jesus to care for us, to, to, to lead us, to help us. And yes, that is what leads him or led him to die for us. In verse 13 to 15, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So he says, I'm going to die for you. And no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. You know, we sing the song, what a friend we have in Jesus, which is true. But you'll notice in the Bible, human beings are, some human beings are called friends of God. Right? There's Moses, there's Abraham, and then there's us. But God is never called the friend of the people. And why is that? The friendship that the Bible talks about is an intimacy of knowledge and communication. What does it mean to be a friend of God? You know, in today's world, what, what, is, what does it mean to be a friend? Whatever you do, I will still stay strong to the relationship. Fr like, true friendship endures. But you, that's not what it means to be a friend of God. Because if you as a friend take the privilege of saying that, oh, God is my friend, I can disobey him because he's my friend, that would be a dishonor to God. But rather, where the servant is only told you have to obey, friends are told this is why you have to obey. Revealed to them are the master's purposes and motivations. So it's like a king. Instead of just telling someone, you have to obey, this king tells us why and what and how you have to obey. The friends of the king are intimate with him. They have a seat at his table, a window into his thinking, and a share in his success. 
that is not a privilege given to servants. And this king loves his friends so much that he will lay down his life for them. That's why the wine imagery captures the intimacy of the relationship that exists not only between the wine dresser and the wine, but it also exists and is mirrored by the wine's relationship with its branches. So we looked at the relationship aspect of it. Let's come to the fruitfulness aspect of the metaphor. If you think about it, this is the most natural um, application that comes into your mind. The wine is not some plant that actually has beautiful flowers. It has very small flowers. It looks at its best when it is filled with a harvest crop of luscious grapes. And so the wine in all its glory is when its branches overflow with grapes that are ready to fall off and is ripe for the picking. And so Jesus has told us he is the wine and we are the branches. And the branches are what bears and carries the fruit physically. So what counts if you are a branch is whether you are bearing fruit, whether you are fruitful. And the true wine, which is Jesus Christ, has to be characterized by abundant fruit. So Jesus' desire for the branches that are joined to him, that his disciples, all of us, is, is it that we bear fruit? No, that would be too basic, too normal. So here he says, if you read verse 2, verse 5, and verse 8, it says, you must bear more fruit or much fruit. The true wine's fruitfulness has to exceed the normal fruitfulness of any other wine. And so if you turn your attention to verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here he says, this fruit bearing should be a sign of two things, or is a sign of two things. One is the proof that Jesus' disciples are indeed his disciples, comes from the fact that they bear much fruit. That is, they are the branches who belong to the true wine, and in that union with the life-giving wine, they cannot but bear abundant fruit. So you prove to be my disciples when you bear much fruit. Secondly, through that abundant fruitfulness, Jesus says the Father is glorified. Jesus' mission is to bring glory to the Father. And, and we have seen in John's Gospel and throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the Gospels that Jesus' work on behalf of the Father on this earth through his ministry was to save his people from their sins and redeem them into his possession. Those people become branches. And they are now responsible to show the visible results of Jesus' ministry. And how do you do that? by bearing fruit. And in that fruit bearing, we bear testimony to the validation or to the validity of the life-changing message of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So when you bear testimony that the gospel is true because of the evidence that you see in me, which is fruit bearing, you bring glory to Jesus. And Jesus says, when you bring glory to me, what happens? My Father is glorified. So that's why I said that it's a risk 
of the intimacy between Jesus and us that the visible fruit bearing of the vine is dependent on our ongoing response to the word of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus reminds the disciples, you have to bear much fruit because that is a substantial portion of the means by which I bring glory to my Father. Or to put it in a negative sense, to not bear fruit is in a way robbing, robbing God of glory. So if you bear fruit, you are bringing glory to God. If you do not bear fruit, you're, you're robbing God of glory that is rightfully his. And what is the fruit that we are to bear? What is the fruit that we are to bear as disciples of Jesus Christ? If you read in this context, he's talking to the 11 disciples. Why are they only 11 disciples? Because Judas left them uh, a, a couple of chapters ago. And here there's the fruit. If you read right at the end of the passage we read, there's the fruit of mission. That is new believers. But you also see as you read through the passage that Jesus desires obedience. He desires joy. He desires love for fellow believers. Emphasized over and over again as visible signs of discipleship. And then we are all familiar with Paul's fruit of the spirit in Galatians. And if you cast your mind all the way back to Genesis, God's first command to Adam and Eve was what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over it. See, fruitfulness has always stood for the visible result of following God's will. And that is comprehensive. The question is not what is the fruit. The question is what is fruitfulness. It involves every aspect of our character as we mold ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ. And other evidence as determined by our situation and context in life as we go along this journey of discipleship. So what marks us out as Christians, as disciples in every situation? That is what is called as fruit. Because as branches that derive its growth and its life from the true vine, fruitfulness brings glory to God and it brings, and it brings glory to Jesus Christ. So we looked at the relationship. We looked at the fruitfulness. Now look at, let's look at the sustenance or the maintenance of, of, of the vine. Since Fruit bearing is so important to the wine, the wine needs to be tended to and cared for by the wine dresser over time, right? It's, it doesn't just exist for a season or for a year. It has to be constantly tended. And it's a delicate process. One part of it is trimming, or what is called here as pruning. See, it's very important that the wine dresser prunes the branches. What does that mean? It means that you have to um, you have to um, strip the branches in such a way that when the next season comes about, it bears fruit. At the same time, if you completely strip the branches or trim the branches, you will actually get less fruit. So there's, a, there's like a science or an art to it where you have to prune it to the right level so that all of the new growth 
doesn't actually grow in just growing the branch, but it grows into bearing grapes. So that's why pruning is very important. And then the second aspect is to get rid of dead wood, which are dead branches that are no longer capable of bearing fruit. S because if you leave dead wood on the, on the vines, what happens? It basically draws sustenance and nourishment from the plant without actually bearing any fruit. So in, it is taking away nutrition from the fruitful branches. And so the wine dresser, which is in this case the father, he undertakes this process of trimming or pruning as well as cutting off. So in verse 2 of chapter 15 it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes or he trims, that it may bear more fruit. So every branch that is fruitful, the father trims so that it will be even more fruitful. So if you cast your mind to the language of the New Testament, we know that when you talk about trimming or, or, or pruning, it evokes you know, the trials and the discipline that we undergo in our Christian life so that we may increase in our faith, so that we may increase in our fruit. Right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 and then verse 10, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That is pruning. Then verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. He's talking about parents. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we may share or increase in our holiness. So you're bearing more fruit by the act of pruning. The second thing the father does as wine dresser is to cut off dead wood. That is every branch that is incapable of bearing fruit. And here we come to you know, the stuff that leads to long discussions and debates among Christians. Who are these dead branches? right? And how in the world did they get attached to Jesus in the first place? This is the, the debate that you know, many people can have when they discuss this chapter. And we have to remember that the metaphor of the wine demands that the wine be um, taken care of in an appropriate manner. That means you have to prune and trim the wine. You have to prune and cut off the wine, just like in real life. But it is stretching the application of the metaphor if you focus too much on why are there dead branches in the first place and what is the salvation history of these dead branches without focusing on what actually is emphasized. What is emphasized here? The need for fruitfulness to prove the validity of your discipleship. So the, the cutting off is to highlight the need for fruitfulness and the extent of the intimacy that exists between the wine and the branches that are connected to it fruitfully. And that's why in verse 3, Jesus emphasizes, it says he speaks to the 11 disciples. He says, already you are clean. And the word for clean, there is actually a similar word as the word for prune and trim. Or you can say, already you are trimmed or already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he's saying that you are already clean. You have already started out as fruitful in your life because of the word that I have spoken to you. So his word, his revelation, when successfully applied in the lives of a person, sets them apart as branches that are already clean and fruitful. And so those branches will, what will happen to them? 
they will get pruned they won't get cut off but you also think about the fact that these 11 disciples are sitting and they understand that their one of their one of the their colleagues if you can call them that is missing who was the 12th disciple judas judas left now judas you could say was a visible branch in the vine till he was not he was cut off due to his lack of fruit and throughout the new testament you see examples of people who looked like they were true christians but in the end due to their lack of fruit and obedience they resemble not the fruitful branches of the true vine but the corrupt branches that characterized the unfruitful vine in the old testament that's why john in first john chapter 2 and verse 19 it's he tells us about some people that they went out from us but they were not of us because if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain or visible that they all are not of us so the lack of fruitfulness marked them out as not belonging to the true vine and hence they were cut off visibly evidently cut off to have no further appearance of contact and union with the true vine who is Jesus Christ and no further fellowship with the true branches who are Christians so the cutting off is a process that emphasizes the need for fruitfulness as what marks out true disciples as opposed to false disciples or dead branches but the father's role is not the only piece that is highlighted by Jesus in this in this metaphor of sustenance he ascribes a role to us the branches in maintaining and sustaining the fruitfulness of the vine and that is characterized by the repeated command of Jesus Christ of abide or remain in me so in verse 4 and 5 he says abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches who are abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing then in verse 6 the one that does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned you see this another place that the metaphor breaks down a little bit because you don't actually think that or i'm 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 not too aware of the intricate workings of plant life but you wouldn't think that branches have a choice other than to remain attached to the branch like they cannot like wiggle themselves free of the vine but jesus breaks the metaphor to tell us that the intimacy of his relationship with us that gives us life and also the mutuality of our intimacy which means that we have to bear fruit on behalf of him means that we have to continuously rely on him depend on him for our life and our sustenance so that we can be fruitful so that's why he tells to the branches you have to abide in me because i have given you the responsibility of bearing fruit on my behalf and bringing glory to the father that's why he breaks the metaphor So the question we ask ourselves is when Jesus says am I abiding in him am I abiding in his love is am I deriving my life and existence and the means of my sustenance from the source who is Jesus Christ 
which is the true vine, or am I depending on something or someone else? The more I depend on him, the more I'll be fruitful. My aim is to be so completely dependent on him so that I can be as fruitful as possible. And two further aspects of this kind of abiding is highlighted by Jesus. The first one in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. One, you know, one aspect of abiding in Jesus means that his words abide in us. And that basically means that, you know, Jesus, we read at the beginning of John's gospel, who is Jesus? In the beginning was the, the word. Jesus is the word. He's the word become flesh. And his revelation to us is the source of our cleanliness, of our fruitfulness. So to abide in Jesus is equal to having his word abide in us, which means that it stays in our hearts and our minds. As we increase in the knowledge and understanding of his word, the more it transforms us to be like him, to think like him, and to be fruitful. That's what it means, that my words abide in you. And in turn, after Jesus has communicated to us by his word, we can communicate with God through prayer. So he says, ask whatever you wish. Now you don't understand, the ask whatever you wish is dependent on the fact that my words abide in you. So that our minds and our hearts are so transformed by the abiding word that the desires of our heart are in accordance with the will of God. So that whatever we pray for, whatever we desire, whatever we wish for, delights God that he grants it to us. Like a lot of people say that this means that you can ask for whatever you wish. Like I want, I want a Ferrari or, or a McLaren Senna. But that's, not, that's clearly not what it means here. It means that if my words abide in you, you ask. If I have communicated to you, you respond in a way that shows that that communication has made a change in your life. And what you ask for will be in accordance with the will of God so that God gives it to you. The second aspect of abiding is abiding in the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he ties it back to intimacy. Jesus says, I have loved you with the same love that the Father has for me. So remain in that love. So how do you remain in that love? By continually obeying and doing his commandments. Once again, just like our notion of friendship, in our notion of love, that would not seem to be very loving. You would say, oh, you don't love me for who I am, but just for just what I do, right? How is that real love? But we have to understand, to be in a loving relationship, in a true loving relationship where we are loved and we also love. That means it's not just one-sided. It's to treasure that relationship, enjoy that relationship in such a way that we respond to the love that is given to us in a manner that pleases the one who loves us. And so Jesus says that the Father loves me and I will do and I have done whatever it takes to do his will to please him. 
I have obeyed his commandments, so I remain, I continue to enjoy the love that flows between us. So there is an expectation, a standard that differentiates true love from love that is fleeting, from love that is cynical, from love that is only there for a season. You know, many of us growing up, uh, you know, we grew up in a time which was much more, uh, at least let's say in school, was academically more stringent. So you would come back to your parents and they would be like, okay, how was your report card or whatever? And you'll say, well, I got like, I don't know, uh, 86%. They're like, why? And then he's like, well, the rest of my class also only got 86%. And then my dad would be like, well, I don't care about the rest of your class. I care about you, right? It, and as much as that is irritating, the, the idea is that when someone invests in you, gives of themselves, expends themselves in service to you because they loved you first, there is an expectation, a standard that marks you out as different from anyone else with whom they do not share that relationship. So all true love has an expectation of response. And the standard for us as branches of the true wine as Christians is not human standards, but the standard set by Christ himself, which is a tough standard. He says, I remain in the love of my Father by keeping his commandments. So do likewise. And that's a tough standard because of the perfection that is demanded due to the intimacy between Jesus, the Son of God, and us. And why he gives us that standard is so that we aspire for it, we aim for it, so that and also when we fail, he says, you can run to me, you can depend on me, you can ask in my name, to the Father so that I will make you able to raise yourself to the standard that I have set for you and keep yourself within the expectation of the true love that exists between us. It's a tough standard, but it's the only standard that makes sense for Christians. Because if, he, if Jesus loves us truly, he expects us to love him back with the perfection that is really tough for us to maintain. And that's why he says in verse 11, he brings this idea to a close. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and, yet, and that your joy may be full. What is joy? Anyone? What, what is joy? Hmm? How is joy different from happiness? Like we are all very, uh, we are all become philosophers in the modern age. So you could be like, uh, you know, crying and, you know, in a mess on the outside, but you say, oh, I'm still joyful inside. Despite circumstances. Okay, so what is joy? So this is what the dictionary defines it. It is the emotion that is evo evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or, this is what's important, by the prospect of possessing what one desires. That is the delight, the expression, or the exhibition of such emotion because of possessing what you desire. Jesus says that what I desire is possessing the love of the Father so that it brings me the utmost joy, a fullness of joy when I obey him, submit him to his will, and I bring him pleasure that way. Therefore, 
I am joyful because I possess what I desire. And he says, I want that fullness of joy to be a reality for you. So he says, obey me, not because a contract demands it, like a servant to a master, where obedience is based on the fact that you will be paid for the service that you render. Obey me because you cherish the intimacy and the dependency and the fruitfulness of our relationship because your utmost desire is for that relationship to grow stronger and further so that you find no pleasure, no desire greater than continually increasing in the experience of my love for you. That's why he says, so that your joy may be full. He says, you have to desire this more than anything else. And too often we would rather be servants. Tell me what to do so that I can do it. And then I'm done. So that our obedience does not lead to joy. But it is a form of task orientation or result orientation. I will do what I have to do in order to maintain this. But Jesus says, I have called you friends. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have died for you. I now live for you. I have given you a seat at my table. I have given you a window into my, into my thoughts. Do you take pleasure in that? Do, you, do we find our longings and our desires for him to be inferior to all the desires of the world? Do we find our longing and our desire to remain in the fellowship and the communion and the love of the Son of God, the Word who became flesh, who lived for us and died for us and lives once again for us because He loves us? Do we desire that more than anything else? And if you possess that, if you do what it takes, which is to obey Him fruitfully, He says your joy will be full because you have what you desire so that nothing else matters. If we love him in that intimate love between the wine and his branches, then we will bear more and more fruit to bring glory to him and to the Father, to see his name and fame and renown spread through our testimony so that we can say, this is the God who loves me and I love him and I abide in his love. That is my greatest desire and joy. And that is Jesus' desire for us. May it be our desire for ourselves. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for once again for your word. We thank you for the word become flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has not only revealed himself to us, but he has given us an insight into the mind of God so that today we are called friends of God. We know, Lord, what a great risk it is for, for you to to, to base your testimony and the fame and the renown of your name on the fact that we as branches have to bear fruit on behalf of the true wine who is Jesus himself, who in his perfection of obedience and fruitfulness brings glory to you. But today we are asked to bring glory to your name through the works that we do. So we ask, O oh Lord, that we will do that not with the strength that we possess in ourselves, but with the confidence that you have told us that Whatever we ask in the name of Jesus, according to your will, you will grant us. So we pray, O Lord, that our standards for ourselves will not be diminished compared to the expectations you have for, you, you have for us. And we pray, O Lord, that as we go in this 
life journey of discipleship, that we will only increase in our fruit bearing, that we will increase in our love for one another, and most of all, we'll increase in our love for you, so that our joy may be full. And may that joy be evident in our interactions with each other and with the world, so that they can ask and understand what it means to be a part of the true wine, who is Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.